Thank you for listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We are now presenting Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, with Roy Shulman. Hi, this is Roy Shulman, and welcome again to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church, or seen the other way around, that celebrates the full realization, fulfillment, completion of Judaism in the Catholic Church and her sacraments. Now, I want to do today's show a little bit on two tracks. There are two things I want to do. Um, the main part of the show I want to dedicate to the feast day, which was yesterday on the traditional calendar, which is the Feast of the Seven Dolors of Our Lady. Since we're here at the transition between Passion Week and Holy Week, it would be obviously very good to dwell on what Jesus did for us and for the, on the role of the Blessed Virgin Mary in his sacrifice and in our redemption. So that's going to be the main body of the show. However, if you're like me or everyone I know, you're kind of obsessed right now with what's going on with the uh, coronavirus and with the churches being closed and with the stay-at-home orders and with the economy tanking as a result and so forth. So I wanted to begin this show, I only want to spend about 10 or 15 minutes on it, on a little bit of a discussion, a little exploration on essentially where is God in all of this and how should we be processing this in our spiritual life and in our prayer life, in our relationship to God. So that's going to be the beginning of the show. So I'm just going to kind of launch into that now. Now, Logically speaking, the event itself, the, the uh, worldwide pandemic, um, there are a couple of logical possibilities of how it could come about, how it could have come about. It could simply be a freak of nature that has nothing to do with what anyone did. I'm just speaking logically now. Or it could have been a man-aided catastrophe, in other words, a kind of fundamentally natural origin, but then the situation having been made a lot worse by irresponsible or sloppy or careless behavior by people. Or, in fact, logically speaking, it could be an entirely malicious intentional action. I know that sounds a little bit crazy, but I have friends who I don't think are crazy who are taking seriously that possibility. Uh, that, in fact, this was engineered on purpose. And I don't want to go down that road, but um, I just want to introduce it for the sake of this theological discussion that it is a logical possibility. If you want to go down that road, all you would have to do is Google Event 201. And um, that will take you to a website of the Johns Hopkins Medical Center, the World Economic Forum, and so forth. Very uh, respectable and, and stable institutions and you will find out some of the things that were going on that suggest to some people that perhaps there was an actual malevolent intent and that this was actually a, a, a intentionally produced man-made pandemic. But anyway, leaving that aside, those are the three possibilities. And in fact, which of those three possibilities it is doesn't really affect our proper relationship to it, our proper response to it, how we process it in our prayer lives. 
because, of course, the question that emerges, whatever the source of this pandemic was, where is God in all of this? And whatever the source was, whether it was malicious actors or whether it was a total accident or whether it was a combination of the two, we do know something for sure, which is that absolutely nothing happens without the divine will, without God's will, either ordaining the event or knowingly permitting the event. And in a sense, there isn't much space between the two. In either case, it's happening because God chose to have it happen. Now, you know, it's in some sense, we know that earthquakes and so forth are referred to as acts of God. Um, it's easy to perhaps think of natural disasters as an act of God. But we know as Christians and as Catholics and even as Jews that, in fact, God works his divine providence through, through nature and through the action of men, including extremely evil men. And since we're coming up on Holy Week, let me just point out that the greatest thing that ever happened to all of humanity, for our sake, so to speak, was the crucifixion of Christ, because it brought about our redemption. The crucifixion of Christ was clearly part of divine providence. There would have been no reason, actually, for Christ to have incarnated if he wasn't going to be crucified and thereby take away our sins and uh, open up the gates of heaven. However... That crucifixion came about through the actions of extremely evil men, Pontius Pilate, the high priest Caiaphas, Judas the traitor, and so forth. God made use of the free will actions of some of the most evil men known to mankind to bring about his divine providence. So even if the current pandemic is the result of an enemy agent state trying to tank the world economy, or the U.S. economy, or whatever the plot was about, that doesn't mean it's not part of divine providence. It doesn't really matter from the point of view of God's role in it, whether the agency he made use of was entirely natural or was, in fact, malicious, malevolent, intentional actions. Um, I mentioned that this is true in Judaism, too. If you look at the Old Testament, you see that the greatest disaster, in some sense, one of the two greatest disasters to befall Israel, the um, loss of the ten, lo ten northern tribes, they're, con they're being conquered by Assyria and led into slavery. It says explicitly in a number of places in the Old Testament that God raised up Assyria to be a scourge to Israel because of Israel's infidelity. That's said explicitly in Second Kings. It's said explicitly in the prophet Isaiah and so forth that God explicitly raised up this evil, evil king of an evil, evil kingdom in order to chastise the people of Israel. So we have plenty of precedents to know that God uses even the actions of evil people to chastise us. Um, then we can, I'll go on, uh, I'll come back to this. Um, th there have been people, there even was a high churchman, who last week claimed that God does not punish and therefore that considering the coronavirus as a chastisement is an idea that comes from paganism, not from Christianity or the Catholic Church. Now, um, that is an unsupportable claim, if, if you forgive me for saying so. And I have a response in front of me that was written by a archbishop, actually a, a friend of mine, 
And I just want to read some excerpts from his response to this claim that the coronavirus could not possibly be a chastisement or a punishment from God. So here's the response, quote, A father who does not punish his children does not love them, but rather neglects them. A doctor who uncaringly observes the patient getting worse until gangrene sets in does not want his recovery. God is a loving father because he teaches us what we have to do to be worthy of eternal happiness and paradise. When we disobey his commandments by sinning, he does not let us die, but comes to find us and sends us many signs, often very sternly. Then, as a result, we mend our ways, repent, do penance, and return to our old friendship with him. You are my friends if you do the things that I command you. Excuse me. You are my friends if you do the things that I command you. I think the words of our Lord leave no room for ambiguity. The crimes which stain each of us in the eyes of God are another hammer blow on the very nails used to pierce our Lord's sacred and venerable hands, a lash ripping away the flesh from his sacred body, a spit in his beloved face. If only we realized these things, we would never sin again, and sinners would weep with profound sorrow for the rest of their lives. As well as the sins committed by individuals, there are also the sins of societies, of nations. Abortion, which is still murdering innocent children even during the pandemic, divorce, euthanasia, the abhorrence of so-called gay marriages, the celebration of sodomy and other terrible perversions, pornography, the corruption of children, speculation by the financial elite, the profaning of Sundays, and the list goes on and on. There are nations which do not merely ignore God, but deny him openly. There are those which require their citizens to accept laws against natural morals and Catholic teaching, such as recognizing the right to abortion, euthanasia, and sodomy. Others corrupt children and violate their innocence. Those who allow people to blaspheme God's divine majesty cannot evade God's punishment. Let us not forget that the ecclesiastical community, which is also society, is not exempt from heavenly punishment when its leaders become responsible for collective offenses. Although the church is holy, some of her members and of her hierarchy here on earth may be sinners. In these troubled times, there have been many clerics unworthy of the name, as the abuse scandals committed by them, and unfortunately others, have shown. Indeed, I think our Lord has rightly become indignant at the great multitude of scandals committed by those who ought to be setting a good example, because they are the shepherds to the flocks to whom they have been entrusted. The suspension of the sacraments, which we have seen in almost all the world, is a terrible suffering, perhaps even the worst the faithful have ever seen. It is unbelievable that such a thing has been denied to the dying. I almost wonder, and it is a terrible thing to think, whether the closure of churches and the suspension of all celebrations might not be another punishment by God in addition to the pandemic. The church must convert and go completely over to being on God's side. We cannot reach any compromises whatsoever with the world. We must stop teaching false doctrines and stop being afraid of preaching about purity and holiness and stop being silent in front of the arrogance of evil. Catholic life must be a battle to the end,
not a happy-go-lucky walk toward the abyss. All of us will be asked by our Lord to give account of the souls we have saved and those we have lost by not reprimanding and rescuing them. Let us go back to the one true faith, to living a life of holiness, to the only cult pleasing to God. I think that is a very powerful statement. Um, we know from Our Lady's words at Fatima, she said, quote, Wars are a punishment for the sins of mankind. We know from both the Old and the New Testament that so are natural disasters, earthquakes, uh, tidal waves, floods, and plagues in both the Old and New Testament are named as scourges sent by God. And um, this particular uh, scourge is uh, very interesting to think about because there are two dimensions to the suffering produced by the pandemic. There is the suffering imposed on the worldly in worldly terms, the collapse of the economy, the um, house arrest in nation after nation, essentially, the restrictions on movement, the restrictions on activities, the loss of jobs, terrible physical worldly suffering. And then for those of us who do love God and love God through the Catholic Church, there is the almost unprecedented suffering, certainly in our lifetimes, of a virtually total deprivation of the sacraments. We're coming up on Holy Week and Easter, and it is few and far between to find those of us who will be able to even attend an Easter Mass, even receive communion. It used to be called the Easter duty to go to confession and receive communion for Easter. And this is a particularly uh, egregious suffering for those of us who are closest to God. And uh, we also know that suffering offered up lovingly in acceptance of God's will is very pleasing to God, especially coming from those who are closest to him. Which brings me to the bottom line and my conclusion for this little introduction to the show, which is how should we respond to what is happening? And I think religiously speaking, prayerfully speaking, there's only one answer, which is we should open our hearts, we should open our entire selves to accept with love, with faith, with devotion, and even with worship, all that comes to us from God's loving hand, whether it is good and pleasing to us or whether it is suffering and deprivation. We should open ourselves. We should make our souls like, a, like an empty box to simply receive what God is choosing to send us and to bounce it back to him, so to, so to speak, with worship and adoration and praise. As St. Padre Pio said, we accept good things lovingly and appreciatively from the hand of God. Soon we also accept unpleasant things in the same spirit. When he, in his love for us, in his concern for us, in his attempt to put us back on the right path, sends us suffering, sends us deprivations, and so forth. So, in a nutshell, I think that is really the, the bottom line of how we should be responding to this crisis in our prayer life, whatever the source of it may be. So, with that, I am going to transition to the main part of the show, uh, the sufferings of our Blessed Mother associated with associated, obviously, with the crucifixion 
with Holy Week and the crucifixion. But I, as I mentioned earlier in the show, I'm doing this because yesterday, the Friday of Passion Week, traditionally was celebrated as the feast of the seven dollars of the Blessed Virgin Mary. So in order to dwell on that, I'm going to give a short introduction to that feast day. And I um, will also, about halfway through the show, which is coming up all too soon, I will um, actually uh, introduce a short musical break. And as I often do, I didn't mention this at the outset of the show, I should have, but this is, of course, a live call-in show. And um, I invite calls, and very often calling in during the musical break is particularly... Uh, graceful time to call because then coming out of the break I will look at the call board and uh, and take calls before going back into the discussion itself. So let me just read a brief introduction to the Feast of the Seven Dollars of Our Lady which was on the uh, traditional church calendar for yesterday. This Friday of Passion Week is consecrated in a special manner to the sufferings which the Holy Mother of God endured at the foot of the cross. The whole of next week is fully taken up with the celebration of the mysteries of Jesus' passion, and although the remembrance of Mary's share in those sufferings is often brought before the faithful during Holy Week, yet the thought of what her Son, our Divine Redeemer, goes through for our salvation so absorbs our attention and love that it is not then possible to honor as it deserves the sublime mysteries of the mother's compassion. It was but fitting, therefore, that one day in the year should be set apart for this sacred duty, and what day would be more appropriate than the Friday of this week, the Friday of Passion Week. As far back as the 15th century, we find the pious Archbishop of Cologne prescribing this feast to be kept by his people, and then in the last century, Pope Benedict XIII in a decree dated August 22, 1727, ordered it to be kept in the whole church under the name of the Feast of the Seven Dollars of the Blessed Virgin Mary. What the church proposes for her children's devotion for this Friday of Passion Week is that one special suffering of Mary, her standing at the foot of the cross, be commemorated. Among the various titles given to this feast before it was extended by the Holy See to the whole Church, we may mention that of Our Lady of Pity, the Compassion of Our Lady. That we may clearly understand the object of this feast and spend it as the Church would have us do, in paying due honor to the Mother of God and of men, we must recall to our minds this great truth, that God, in the designs of his infinite wisdom, has willed that Mary should have a share in the work of the world's redemption. The mystery of the present feast is one of the applications of this divine law, a law which reveals to us the whole magnificence of God's plan. It is also one of the many realizations of the prophecy that Satan's pride was to be crushed by a woman. In the work of our redemption, there are three interventions of Mary, that is, she was thrice called upon to take part in what God himself did. The first of these was in the incarnation of the Word, who would not take flesh in her virginal womb until she had given her consent to become his mother, 
and this she gave by that solemn fiat which blessed the world with a Savior. The second was in the sacrifice which Jesus consummated on Calvary, where she was present that she might take part in the expiatory offering. The third was on the day of Pentecost, when she received the Holy Ghost, as did the apostles, in order that she might effectively labor in the establishment of the church. Today we must show what part she took part in the mystery of her son's passion. We must tell the sufferings, the dolors, she endured at the foot of the cross, and the claims she thereby won to our filial gratitude. So, with that brief introduction, let me actually play a very, very beautiful hymn that I think most of us are familiar with, At the Cross, Her Station Keeping, known more frequently by its Latin name, Stabat Mater, which is a description of the sufferings endured by the Blessed Virgin Mary at the cross. I'm going to play a, um, a solo voice version of it without accompanying instrumentation because the words of this beautiful hymn, this beautiful prayer, this beautiful homage to the sacrifice, the co-redemptive sacrifice actually, of the Blessed Virgin Mary at the foot of the cross are more easily intelligible without the instrumentation and so forth. So perhaps later in the show I will play a more um, emotive with orchestra version, but to introduce the words, uh, let us now go to this version. At the cross her station keeping Stood the mournful mother weeping Close to Jesus to the last Through her heart his sorrow sharing All his bitter anguish bearing Now at length the sword has passed Oh how sad and sore distressed was that mother highly blessed of the soul begotten one christ above in torment hangs she beneath beholds the pangs of her dying glorious son is there one who would not weep whelmed in misery so deep christ dear mother to behold can the human heart refrain from partaking in her pain in that mother's pain untold bruised derided cursed defiled she beheld her tender child all with bloody scourges rent for the sins of his own nation saw him hang in desolation till his spirit forth he sent O thou mother fount of love touch my spirit from above Make my heart with thine accord. Make me feel as thou hast felt. Make my soul to glow 
and meld with the love of Christ my God. Holy Mother, pierce me through, in my heart each wound renew, of my Savior crucified. Let me share with thee his pain, who for all my sins was slain, who for me in torments died. Let me mingle tears with thee, mourning him who mourned for me all the days that I may live. By the cross with thee to stay, there with thee to weep and pray, is all I ask of thee to give. Virgin of all virgins blessed, listen to my fond request. Let me share thy grief divine. Let me to my latest breath in my body bear the death of that dying son of thine. Wounded with his every wound, steep my soul till it has swooned in his very blood away. Be to me, O virgin, I, lest in flames I burn and die in his awful judgment day. Christ, when thou shalt call me hence, be thy mother my defense, be thy cross my victory. While my body here decays, may my soul thy goodness praise, safe in paradise with thee. Amen. 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 Wow. Of course, the name, I think most of us know it, of that uh, hymn is At the Cross for Station Keeping, and uh, in Latin, Stabat Mater, and this version and any number of other versions can easily be found on YouTube, and I certainly recommend that we make use during Holy Week, not only of the uh, televised or, or live-streamed uh, masses, especially for those of us who don't have access to, to be present at a mass, but also to uh, devotionals on, uh, oh, frankly, over the internet, uh, devotional music, especially music around um, the, the suffering and crucifixion of Jesus that may be available on sources such as YouTube, um, O Sacred Heart, Surrounded, for instance. Um, anyway, back to the Feast of the Seven Dollars of Mary and Mary's co-redemptive suffering at the cross. I will continue reading. I neglected to mention that, in fact, what I am reading is the Liturgical Year by Dom Garanger. Uh, who, he was a Benedictine monk and abbot, 
and he wrote, it's called The Liturgical Year. It's in, I don't know what, 12 volumes, 14 volumes, and it goes through the entire liturgical year with both the readings and the prayers for the various days of the year's liturgy, but also with meditations on the feasts and so forth. So again, I strongly recommend that. That's also available, uh, easy to find over the internet uh, for free, it's PDF or whatever. It's called The Liturgical Year. That's probably enough to to find it. But uh, the author is Dom, D-O-M. It's a title, really. Garanger, which is G-U-E-R-A-N-G-E-R. Back to the reading from Dom Garanger. On the 40th day after the birth of our Emmanuel, we followed to the temple the happy mother carrying her divine babe in her arms. A venerable old man was there waiting to receive her child, and when he had him in his arms, he proclaimed him to be the light of the Gentiles and the glory of Israel. But then turning to the mother, he spoke to her these heart-rending words, Behold, this child is to be set to be a sign that shall be contradicted, and a sword shall pierce thine own soul. This prophecy of sorrow for the mother told us that the holy joys of Christmas were over, and that the season of trial for both Jesus and Mary had begun. It had indeed begun, for from the night of the flight into Egypt up to this present day, when the malice of the Jews is plotting the great crime of the crucifixion, what else has been the life of our Jesus but the bearing of humiliation, insult, persecution, and ingratitude? And if so, what has the mother gone through? What endless anguish of heart, what suffering. But let us pass by all her other sufferings and come to the morning of the great Friday, the day of the crucifixion. Mary knows that on the previous night her son has been betrayed by one of his disciples, that is, by the one that Jesus had numbered among his intimate friends. She herself had often given him proofs of her maternal affection. After a cruel agony, her son has been manacled as a malefactor, and led by armed men to Caiaphas, his worst enemy. Thence, they have dragged him before the Roman governor, whose sanction the chief priests and scribes must have, must have before they can put Jesus to death. Mary is in Jerusalem. Magdalene and the other holy women, the friends of Jesus, are with her. But they cannot prevent her from hearing the loud shouts of the people. And if they could, how is such a heart as hers to be slow in its forebodings? The report spreads rapidly through the city that the Roman governor is being urged to sentence Jesus to be crucified. While the entire populace is on the move towards Calvary, shouting out their blasphemous insults at her Jesus, will his mother be kept away? She that bore him in her womb and fed him at her breast? Shall his enemies be eager to glut their eyes with the cruel sight and his own mother be afraid to be near him? The air resounded with the yells of the mob. Joseph of Arimathea, the noble counselor, was not there. Neither was the learned Nicodemus. They kept at home, grieving over what was done. The crowd that went before and after the divine victim was made up of wretches without hearts, saving only a few who were seen to weep as they went along, and these were women. Jesus saw them and spoke to them. And if these women, from mere sentiments of veneration or at most of gratitude, thus testified their compassion 
would Mary do less? Could she bear to be anywhere else than close to her beloved Jesus? What a heartless insult to the love of the incomparable mother. No, of course not. Mary, who is by excellence the valiant woman, was with Jesus as he carried his cross. And who could describe her anguish and her love as her eye met that of her son tottering under his heavy load? Who could tell the affection and the resignation of the look he gave her in return? Who could depict the eager and respectful tenderness wherewith Magdalene and the other holy women grouped around this mother as she followed her Jesus up to Calvary, there to see him crucified and die? The distance between the fourth and the tenth station of the dolorous way is long. It is marked with Jesus' blood and with his mother's tears. Jesus and Mary have reached the summit of the hill that is to be the altar of the holiest and most cruel sacrifice, but the divine decree permits not the mother as yet to approach her son. When the victim is ready, then she that is to offer him shall come forward. Meanwhile, they nail her Jesus to the cross, and each blow of the hammer is a wound to Mary's heart. When at last she is permitted to approach, accompanied by the beloved disciple, and the disconsolate Magdalene and the other holy women, what unutterable anguish must have filled the soul of this mother when, raising up her eyes, she sees the mangled body of her son stretched upon the cross, his face all covered with blood, and his head wreathed with a crown of thorns. Here, then, is this King of Israel, of whom the angel had told her such glorious things in his prophecy, here is that son of hers, whom she has loved both as her God and as the fruit of her own womb. And who are they that have reduced him to this pitiable state? Men, for whose sake rather than for her own, she convinced him, she conceived him, gave him birth, and nourished him. Oh, if by one of those miracles which his heavenly father could have so easily work, he might again be restored to her. If that divine justice which has taken upon which he has taken upon himself to appease would be satisfied with what he has already suffered, but no, he must die. He must breathe forth his blessed soul after a long and cruel agony. Mary then is at the foot of the cross, there to witness the death of her son. He is soon to be separated from her in three hours' time, all that will be left of this beloved Jesus will be a lifeless body wounded from head to foot our words are too cold for such a scene as this let us listen to those of St. Bernard which the church has inserted in her matins for this feast quote O blessed mother a sword of sorrow pierced thy soul and we may well call thee more than martyr for the intensity of thy compassion surpassed all that a bodily passion could produce could any sword have made thee hurt so much as that word which pierced thy heart, reaching unto the division of the soul and the spirit? Woman, behold thy son. What an exchange. John for Jesus, the servant for the Lord, the disciple for the master, the son of Zebedee for the son of God, a mere man for the very God. How must thy most loving heart have been pierced with the sound of these words, when even ours, that are as hard as stone and steel break down as we think of them. Ah, my brethren, be
Be not surprised when you are told that Mary was a martyr in her soul. Let him alone be surprised, who has forgotten that St. Paul counts it as one of the greatest sins of the Gentiles that they were without affection. Who could say that of Mary? God forbid it be said of us, the servants of Mary. End quote from St. Bernard. Amid the shouts and insults vociferated by the enemies of Jesus, Mary's quick ear has heard these words, which tell her that the only son she is henceforth to have on earth is one of adoption. Her maternal joys of Bethlehem and Nazareth are all gone. They make her present sorrow the more bitter. She was the mother of a god, and men have taken him from her. Her last and fondest look at her Jesus, her own dearest Jesus, tells her that he is suffering a burning thirst, and she cannot give him to drink. His eyes grow dim, his head droops, all is consummated. Mary cannot leave the cross. Love brought her thither. Love keeps her there, whatever may happen. A soldier advances near that hallowed spot. She sees him lift up his spear and thrust it through the breast of the sacred corpse. Ah, cries out St. Bernard, that thrust is through thy soul, O blessed mother. It could but open his side, but it pierced thy very soul. His soul was not there, thine was, and could not but be so. The undaunted mother keeps close to the body of her son. She watches them as they take it down from the cross, and when at last the friends of Jesus, with all the respect due to both mother and son, enable her to embrace it, she raises it upon her lap, and he that once lay upon her knees receiving the homage of the eastern kings now lies there cold, mangled, bleeding, dead. And as she looks upon the wounds of the divine victim, she gives them the highest honor that is within the power of creatures. She kisses them, she braves them with her tears, she adores them, but oh, with what intensity of grief. The hour is far advanced, and before sunset, he, Jesus, the author of life, must be buried. The mother puts the whole vehemence of her love into a last kiss, and oppressed with a bitterness great as the sea, she makes over this adorable body to them that have to embalm and then lay it on the sepulchral slab. The sepulchre is closed, and Mary, accompanied by John, her adopted son, and Magdalene and the holy women, and the two disciples that have presided over the burial, return sorrowing to the deicide city. Now in all this there is another mystery besides that of Mary's suffering. Her dolors at the foot of the cross include and imply a truth which we must not pass by, or we shall not understand the full beauty of today's feast. Why would God have her assistant person at such a scene as this of Calvary? Why was not she as well as Joseph taken out of the world before this terrible day of Jesus' death? It is because God had assigned her a great office for that day, and it was to be under the tree of the cross that she, the second Eve, was to discharge her office. As the Heavenly Father had waited for her consent before he sent his Son into the world, so likewise he called for her obedience and devotedness when the hour came for that son to be offered up in sacrifice for the world's redemption. Was not Jesus hers, her child, her own and dearest treasure? And yet God gave him not to her until she had consented to become his mother. In like manner, he would not take him from her 
unless she gave him back. But see what this involved. See what a struggle it entailed upon this most loving heart. It is the injustice, the cruelty of men that rob her of her son. How can she, his mother, ratify by her consent the death of him whom she loved with a twofold love as her son and as her God? But on the other hand, if Jesus not be put to death, the human race is left a prey to Satan, sin is not atoned for, and all the honors and joys of her being mother of God are of no use or blessing to us. This virgin of Nazareth, this noblest heart, this purest creature, whose affections never blunted with the selfishness which so easily makes its way into souls that have been wounded by original sin, what will she do? Her devotedness to mankind, her conformity with the will of her son, who so vehemently desires the world's salvation, lead her a second time to pronounce the solemn fiat, let it be done. She consents to the immolation of her son. It is not God's justice that takes him from her. It is she herself that gives him up. But in return, she is raised to a degree of greatness which her humility could never have suspected was to be hers. An ineffable union is made to exist between the two offerings, that of the incarnate word and that of Mary. The blood of the divine victim and the tears of the mother flow together for the redemption of mankind. If I may interject here, this is why, as Pope after Pope and Saint after Saint has taught, Mary is the co-redemptrix, is the mediatrix of all graces, and is the co-redemptrix, that she too had a unique role that she played in our redemption. Her double fiat, her first fiat, her first consent to God coming to earth as Jesus, and her second fiat, her second consent to God's will, her second, let it be done to me according to thy word, her willing release of God, of God the Son back to God the Father, her consent to Jesus' infinitely cruel death on the cross, a consent which was necessary for her to play this double rule, double role, double fiat, and earn the title, so to speak, of co-redemptrix. Back to the words of Dom Guéranger. We can now understand the conduct and the courage of this mother of sorrows. Unlike that other mother of whom Scripture speaks, the unhappy Agar, who after sought in vain, after having sought in vain how she might quench the thirst of her Ishmael in the desert, withdrew from him so that she might not see him die. Mary no sooner hears that Jesus is condemned to death than that she rises, hastens to him, and follows him to the place where he is to die. And what is her attitude at the foot of his cross? Does her matchless grief overpower her? Does she swoon or fall? No, the evangelist says, there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother. The sacrificing priest stands when offering at the altar. Mary stood for such a sacrifice as hers was to be. St. Ambrose, whose affectionate heart and profound appreciation of the mysteries of religion have revealed to us so many of the precious traits of Mary's character, speaks thus of her position at the foot of the cross. She stood opposite the cross, gazing with maternal love on the wounds of her son, and thus she stood, not waiting for her Jesus to die, 
but waiting for the world to be saved. Thus, the Mother of Sorrows, when standing on Calvary, blessed us who deserved but maledictions. She loved us. She sacrificed her Son for our salvation. In spite of all the feelings of her maternal heart, she gave back to the Eternal Father the divine treasure he had entrusted to her keeping. The sword pierced through and through her soul, but we were saved. And she, though a mere creature, cooperated with her Son in the work of our salvation. Can we wonder after this that Jesus chose this moment for making her the mother of men in the person of John the Evangelist who represented us? Never had Mary's heart loved us more than she did then. From that time forward, therefore, let the second Eve be the true mother of the living. The sword, by piercing her immaculate heart, has given us admission there. For time and eternity, Mary will extend to us the love she has borne for her son, for she has just heard him saying that we are now to be her children. He is our Lord, for he has redeemed us. She is our Lady, for she generously cooperated in our redemption. Animated by this confidence, O Mother of Sorrows, we come before thee on this feast of thy dolors to offer thee our filial love. Jesus, the blessed fruit of thy womb, filled thee with joy as thou gavest him birth. We, thy adopted children, entered into thy heart by the cruel piercing of the sword of suffering. And yet, O Mary, love us, for thou didst cooperate with our divine Redeemer in saving us. How can we not trust in the love of thy generous heart when we know that for our salvation thou didst unite thyself to the sacrifice of thy Jesus? What proofs have thou unceasingly given us of thy maternal tenderness, O Queen of Mercy, O refuge of sinners, O untiring advocate for us in all our miseries? Deign, sweet Mother, to watch over us during these days of grace. Give us to feel and relish the passion of thy Son. It was consummated in thy presence. Thine own share in it was magnificent. O make us enter into all its mysteries, so that our souls, redeemed by the blood of thy Son and helped by thy tears, may be thoroughly converted to the Lord and persevere henceforth, faithful in his service. Let us now recite the devout complaint whereby the Church unites herself with Mary's dolors. Now, um, what comes now is a traditional sequence, which is actually the stab and matter, which I played. So, uh, since I played it, I will not, I suppose, read it. I'll, I'll read it briefly, I suppose. Again, uh, I apologize for the um, uh, slight distraction or confusedness, of, uh, which comes from trying to be responsive to the Holy Spirit during the show, which sometimes produces a little... A little um, of this uh, apparent disorganization, let's say. And um, so I will read the Stab and Mater. Uh, I know that we just heard it, and uh, a very beautiful uh, rendition of it, but I will uh, read at least many of the verses, and then I think it will, will have come to the dangerously close to the end of the show. And I will close the show by playing another. I don't want to say more dramatic, but instrumented 
version of at the cross or station keeping. So let me just read again some of the sequence. Near the cross. No, I, I actually, sorry, I won't read it because it's not very um, poetic translation that I have in front of me. I will instead read another hymn about the same event um, that is associated with this Feast of the Seven Dollars of Mary. Come, let us devoutly embrace the cross of our Lord that is exposed before us, for our fasts have made us pure. The cross is a treasure of holiness and power, and by it we give eternal praise to Christ. This triple and glorious cross, contemptible as it seemed at first, now reaches the very heavens with its power, ever raising and leading men up to God. By it we give eternal praise to Christ. Honor to this most sacred wood, which as the prophet anciently foretold was to be put in the bread of Christ, by them that crucified him, to him be praise above all forever. Rain down sweetness, O ye mountains, and ye, O hills, your gladness. Trees of the field, cedars of Lebanon, exalt with joy, for on this day we venerate the life-giving cross. Prophets, martyrs, apostles, spirits of the just rejoice. Look down, O Lord, upon thy people and clergy, who now devoutly sing thy praises, and for whose sake thou didst suffer death. Let us not let not the countless number of our sins outdo thy mercy, but save us, most loving Jesus, by thy cross. O cross, thou art the sacred love of my life. Excuse me, O cross, thou art the sacred armor of my life. My Lord saved me by ascending upon thee. From his wounded side there flowed blood and water, of which being made a partaker, I exalt and give glory to Christ. O cross, thou art the divine scepter of the king. Thou art the strength of them that wage war. It is our confidence in thee that makes us put our enemies to flight. O ever grant to us who honor thee victory over the barbarians. Now, um, since this is uh, in principle a show on the union between Judaism and Christianity, let me point out, that the um, that the uh, motto taken by Saint Edelstein, one of the most famous of Jewish Catholic saints, is "O cross, our only hope." The cross is our only hope, and um, uh, excuse me. The cross is our only hope. And let me use that motto to unite this second part of the show with the first part of the show, which was a discussion of the cross that is now being laid on us through the suffering of the coronavirus, through the worldly sufferings that is producing, and especially the spiritual sufferings that is producing in our deprivation of the sacraments. And whatever the guilt of the innocents or the innocents of the people involved who have been human instruments in laying this cross upon us. That's not the point. The point is that we must embrace it with that same motto, O cross, our only hope. And with that, let me uh, close the show with another rendition of um, At the Cross, Her Station Keeping. Uh, let me say goodbye for now. You've been listening to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria.
With me, Roy Shoman, your host, I hope you join us again next week, same time, same place. Bye for now.